Let me read Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in a desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. And this is God's word. We're beginning a new series today. We're calling it The Hard Sayings of Jesus. It's kind of a double entendre. One hand, hard can mean difficult, you know, hard to take in, hard to digest because it's, it's, it's tough to hear. But on the other hand, it also means it's something that you need to sit on for a little bit, something that you need to take in and digest and consume slowly. You need to chew on it. It's kind of like a steak, right, Uh, to savor the richness and the juices that you are taking in. And so to lead off this series, this passage, of course, we're going to begin with a passage that may be familiar to many of you. Right? Jesus is speaking directly with Satan, and Satan says, You're hungry, you're starving, make bread. And Jesus responds, Man does not live by bread alone. What does that mean? And he doesn't indulge. What does that tell you? It tells you that being a Christian doesn't make you immune to suffering, being a Christian doesn't make you immune to temptation. Jesus Christ, the most perfect person that ever walked the earth, He was tempted. He was tormented. He suffered. But what what this gives us is uh, an understanding that being a Christian provides a greater reality, a greater power to deal with our suffering, to deal with our temptation. There are three things that we're going to learn today about our temptations, our suffering, the context, the lesson, the ultimate lesson, the power to deal with suffering and temptation, the context of suffering and temptation, the great lessons in our suffering and temptation, and the power to deal with our suffering and temptation. First, we're going to look at the context. Who suffers? Who is tempted? When do we suffer? When do we experience temptation? Verse 1, Jesus Christ is full of the Spirit. And what happens? Mark 1, what's happening here, Mark 1, is Mark 1 says that when uh, Jesus was baptized, the Spirit of God came down on him and affirmed him. God honored him. That's how he began his ministry. 
He was full of the Spirit. But immediately after, he enters into the wilderness. Into the wilderness. And he's tempted by Satan. He's suffering. In other words, suffering and temptation for Jesus didn't happen at the lowest point of his life. It actually happened at a very high point in Jesus' life. And if Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, can experience temptation during one of the highest points in his life, what does that tell you? Anyone can experience suffering and temptation at any point in our lives. You can experience suffering and temptation anywhere in your life. All of life is filled with suffering and temptation. In fact, immediately after this passage, those next two verses, in verses 14 and 15, it says that Jesus Christ returned in the power of the Spirit, which means he was still full of the Spirit. Verse 1, he's full of the Spirit. Verse 14, he's full of the Spirit. Even after his suffering, even after his temptation. And so there he began to teach. There he began his ministry. And so you see verse 1, full of the Spirit. Verse 14, full of the Spirit. In between, whenever you see a text beginning with a phrase, one phrase, and ending with the same phrase, it's the author's way of showing us, and this is, we know that this is God's word, it's God's intention to show us that if you begin a passage filled with the Spirit, at the end, he's full of the Spirit. In between, we learn what it means then to be full of the Spirit. Over and over, I mean, you see this. It's not just in this passage. Over and over in the Bible, you see this. First Samuel chapter 16 David, young David, is becoming, he's, he's anointed as king. Samuel comes to anoint David. As soon as he is anointed, the text says that the Spirit of God rushed into David's life. And from that point on, the next chapter, he meets Goliath, the giant. After that, he's on the run. He loses friends. People that he trusted become his enemies. He's living in caves. He's part of a civil war. He faces death every day from that point on. But he's filled with the Spirit. Suffering and temptation. Throughout the largest, most notable parts of his story, his narrative, lots of suffering, lots of temptation. Here's Jesus Christ in the wilderness for 40 days. Now, whenever you see the number 40 in the Bible, it's the Bible's way of saying that he is doing, he is representing the life of God's people, the life of God's church. Why? Because God's people originally, they were in the desert for how long? They were in the wilderness for how long? They were in the wilderness for 40 years. And they failed over and over and over during those 40 years. What did they complain about? There was no food. What did they complain about? They were being attacked. What did they complain about? They had no security. You see that? And so this passage is telling us that all of life then, Jesus being in the wilderness 40 days represents all of life, is a wilderness. We are filled with suffering. Life is filled with temptation. And you will not make it without the presence of God in your life. Now, that's going to be mind-blowing. If you're thinking about this, it should be mind-blowing because it's contrary to two views about suffering and temptation that 
those outside of the church in the world will tell you. Two views about suffering, two views about our view of God. First, the first view is what? If I'm in torment, if I'm suffering, if I'm cursed, if I'm being tempted, I must have done something wrong. And as Johnny Cash, if you, anybody listens to Johnny Cash, God's going to cut you down. If I'm suffering, I must have done something bad, and God's going to get me. And the corollary to that is what? The second view, that if I'm experiencing something good, if I'm blessed, I must have done something right to deserve it. And every religion in the world teaches this, that if you live a good life, you will be blessed. It's why Buddhism has the Eightfold Path. It's why Islam has the Five Pillars. It's why Judaism has the Torah, but not Christianity. What does Christianity teach? Christianity teaches, look here, Jesus, the most perfect, most obedient person to ever live. He lived a perfectly obedient life, and yet... He suffers through and through. He is tempted over and over, and he dies. He is cursed, and he dies. The gospel says that if Jesus Christ, the most perfect, most loved and acceptable person that ever walked the earth, if he suffers, anyone can suffer. If Jesus Christ, who always obeyed, was tempted, anyone is prone and eligible to experience temptation. And if Jesus Christ, when he was filled with the Spirit, can experience temptation, then anyone, anytime, anywhere can experience temptation. It doesn't matter how you lived. It doesn't matter if you lived a good life until this point, a bad life up until this point. And if you don't believe this, life will be utter mess, an utter mess your view of God will be an utter mess. So what are the lessons? That's the second point. What's that great lesson that we learn from this passage? Look at this passage. There are three temptations. And immediately, what do you see? In each temptation, look at Jesus. Jesus Christ and his self-control. Look at his integrity. Look at his faithfulness. Look at his Endurance. Look at his resilience. Truly faithful. And all of that is revealed through his response to temptation. What that means is that your circumstances, your temptations, your environment does not cause your self-control, does not cause the things that you do. Self-control, faithfulness, it's fruit. It's the fruit, what is revealed in the midst of your suffering, what is revealed in the midst of temptation. Your self-control is what? Self-control is the ability to desire, to choose what is important over the things that are urgent and demanding and calling you moment by moment. If you notice, Satan doesn't tempt Jesus by taking him to the red light district, right? Hiring prostitutes, trying to get him to do drugs. What does he use? Bread. He doesn't use bad things. 
He uses good things. He uses necessary things. Bread, power, security. These are good things. These are sometimes necessary things. Your wealth, your promotions, your titles, a nice house, living in a nice neighborhood, having a wonderful career, having a solid bank account, a wonderful 401k portfolio. Nothing wrong with any of those things. But what Satan was doing, it was he was offering them to Jesus apart from God without the cross. Making those things and those desires more important, more urgent than Jesus' relationship with God. He's taking this good thing and trying to get Jesus to consider it as an ultimate thing in that moment. If you look at the three temptations, look at it. Verses three to four, turn these stones to bread. Or turn this stone to bread. Bread throughout the Old Testament represented satisfaction. If Jesus Christ indulged in that moment, it would have been the only time throughout all of the Gospels that he used his power, his ability to satisfy himself and his own needs. What's the temptation? To use your abilities, to use your gifts, to indulge yourself. God has given all of you gifts, wonderful gifts. You're finally free. And how do you use those gifts? How are you using the gifts that God has given you? Because most of us, we like to ex exert our capabilities, our strengths. In fact, that's what we like to pitch to other people. When you go on a date, you're not going to sit there and try to show your weakness. The first thing you talk about is what you do. Because you want to demonstrate your capability your strength, your abilities. You talk about the good things that are going on. If Jesus Christ indulged, it would have been the only time that he had postured his abilities to indulge. The temptation was to use his ability to indulge himself without ever having to go to the cross. Verses 5 through 8, second temptation, I will give you authority. He takes him to this high place and he says, all of this will be yours. In other words, you can have power and glory apart from God. You don't even have to go to the cross. Every knee will bow to you and you will never have to suffer. Verses 9 through 12, what's the temptation? Jump off from this high point. God himself promised that he will rescue you. God himself promised that he will keep you safe. You can have security. You never have to go to the cross. You can have security without God, security without the cross. It was a promise. He owes it to you. You can have satisfaction. You can indulge. You can have power. You can have glory. You can have security. You know, Satan's presence is like a voice, lies. But that voice that battles you like this, in any given moment, and it's moment to moment, 
In any given moment, you can have, you can indulge. Why not? You deserved it. You earn it. You can't have that little thing. It's not a sin to have that little thing. You can indulge. You can satisfy yourself. Come on, enjoy it. You can have power. Seize it. I mean, why did you work so hard to get to this place? At all costs, you can have power. You can have glory for once for yourself. You can have wealth and influence and knowledge. After all, why did your parents bring you here? How did they, why did they raise you up? Be a man. Be today's woman. You can have all of this. Don't let the Bible hold you back. You can pray for forgiveness afterwards. You can have all these things apart from God without suffering at other people's cost. It's a race. You gotta get it. Carpe diem, you gotta seize it. Nothing should stop you from getting that which you want. You deserve it. I mean, isn't that the modern voice? In the 1980s, I mean, I grew, I'm a child of the 80s. It was very simple. We didn't use that many words. They just said, if it feels good, it'll make you feel good. In the 1980s, they said, well, famous moniker, just do it. Just do it. And if Jesus Christ listens to that voice, he loses himself, he loses his relationship with the Father, he loses his mission, and he sacrifices the world. This world that didn't deserve his love, he sacrifices everyone. But what was Jesus' mission? The first thing he does after he leaves the wilderness, you know what he does? He goes to the synagogues that representation of the Old Testament way of getting to God. He goes to the synagogues and he teaches. Why? Because he's saying there's a new sheriff in town, in a sense. He's ushering a new voice. He's ushering a new kingdom. The kingdom of Satan always says you can indulge, you can have glory, you can have security, and you can do it just by working. You can get it on your own apart from God. It started in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Eve said, I mean, she didn't even get it right. She's looking at the fruit. She says, God said no. If I paraphrase it, God said no. She messed it up a little bit and said, well, God said, if you touch it, you're going to die. And Satan comes up to her and says, did he really say that? Did he really tell you everything that you can have apart from him? That seed of distrust at the root of your desire to indulge or gain power on your own or gain security and work and work. And by the way, when you do that, what are the implications? You are working and working and working and working. You say, I only need to do this for three more years. And three years turns into 10 years. 10 years turns into an entire career. And you're still going, and it never feels like enough. And your life is filled with anxiety. 
Filled with anxiety whether you succeed or fail, and it's filled with depression, especially when you fail. Sometimes it's filled with depression when you succeed because it's not enough, and you recognize there's no meaning in it. And you have lived a lie. You read that famous book, Death of a Salesman, Arthur Miller. My whole life has been a lie, he says. Jesus' kingdom always says, you can help, you can give, you can sacrifice, you can save other people, you can help them to receive true joy, help others to experience true glory, true security at my cost. Satan says, indulge at other people's cost. Jesus says, help others advance at my cost. You know what that means? Every step you take is always going to be one step closer towards God's voice or away from God's voice. One step closer to God's voice or one step closer to Satan's voice. Which means your suffering, your anxieties, your pain, your experiences, your hurts, the temptations that come from that reveal your heart's desire to indulge yourself, glorify yourself, preserve yourself apart from God. This is an ancient text, but it's got modern idols. And so the real lesson of the text, the most dangerous enemy in this text in life is you. Your heart, your desires, what you desire apart from God. It's not about the lies. It's not about the lies that you listen to, in a sense. You know, we always say, oh, I've been listening to a lie. I'm not a child of God. I listen to that lie. I believe that lie. We all say that. It's the way your heart processes those lies and responds. Take ownership. Take responsibility. It's the way your desires battle or receive those lies. Distorts the truth to get you to avoid God again. To make your fears and your anxieties and your sadnesses, and your anger, and that visible reality, what you see to become more real and more important, more urgent than the underlying reality of the presence of God in your life. How are you going to resist that? How are we going to be rescued from that? How can, where are we going to get the power to be rescued from that? And that's the third point. How does Jesus respond each time, each time? His response, he relies on scripture. Each time he refers to God's voice, Jesus Christ resists the temptation, the temptation to indulge, the temptation for his own glory, the temptation for his own security, knowing that his mission would take him to the cross. And this was at the beginning of his mission. You know what his glory was? The gospel according to John as right before he was arrested, 
right before he was crucified on the cross. Jesus Christ tells his disciples, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In other words, my glory moment has arrived. You know what he was referring to? Whenever you look at the gospel according to John and look up the word glory and highlight that word, you will see that it's always pointing to his death. Always pointing to his death, the cross. What did Jesus use his gifts for? What did Jesus use his abilities for? What did Jesus use his mission? How did he comply? He was going straight to the cross. That was his journey. That's all of his strength, all of his energy. It's about him and accomplishing the mission of going to the cross. Here's an interesting thought. Every other Old Testament prophet, you look in the Bible, there's two testaments, two covenants, right? If you're new to the faith, the Bible's divided between an Old Testament written by the ancients and a New Testament when Jesus came. If you look at the Old Testament prophets, lots of prophets in the Old Testament, they're constantly crying out, why? Why is this happening to me? Why me, God? Why? In the New Testament, with all the suffering that all the apostles endured, you will not find the place Anywhere in the New Testament where the apostles cry out and say, why is this happening to me? Save for one. On the cross, Jesus Christ cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The only place. Every apostle looks to that moment and they know that the suffering, the ultimate suffering has been endured. Every apostle is looking at that moment. Jesus enduring the ultimate temptation. Jesus enduring the ultimate suffering for them. And they know then, then my suffering I can endure. These temptations I can endure. At the hour of Jesus' greatest suffering, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But do you know, even there, he was quoting scripture. He wasn't complaining. He was actually quoting scripture. Psalm chapter 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, in his greatest hour of darkness, and there literally was darkness, in his greatest moment of suffering, and there was lots of suffering, outside, inside, temptations going, just raging inside him. Jesus Christ is quoting scripture, obeying scripture. Psalm 22 is a prophetic passage pointing to Christ. He was fulfilling scripture. That means he was worshiping and praying and meditating and fulfilling and obeying scripture, which means that Jesus Christ processed, when he says, forsaken me, you've forsaken me, God has turned his face away from Jesus. His presence has left Jesus. What is hell? When you are completely separated from God, Jesus Christ on the cross experiencing hell, and yet while experiencing hell on the cross, he was processing it in scripture. And if Jesus Christ processed these sufferings and temptations through scripture, then surely you will have the strength the Spirit of God living in you, surely you have the strength to process life through Scripture.
by looking to him. Now, if I were to end this sermon here, a lot of new people here, and say, let's pray. Maybe you walk away inspired. Maybe you'll walk away with a little bit of, I'm just going to like, I'm going to worship. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the Bible. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to memorize scripture so that when times of suffering and temptation come, yeah, I'm going to do that too. Does it work for you? Jesus Christ as an example, just read, just obey, just pray. Jesus Christ as an example will discourage you and ruin you, will never help you, will never help you through your suffering, will never help you through your temptation. You will fail every time, and you will grow resentful of God's promises. You will grow resentful of God's word, and you will grow resentful of his church. You will grow resentful of God. You will blame him. Jesus Christ did not come to be a moral example. He came to be our substitute. You will never know Jesus personally until you see that. Here's what really was happening. Satan takes Jesus up to a mountaintop. He didn't take him up there to get him to stop becoming an example for us. He was trying to keep him from going to the cross. He was trying to keep him from fulfilling his mission. He was trying to prevent him from being our substitute so that then we would have rejected him as king and we would be his. So at this mountaintop, what he's really saying to Jesus was, I will give you all of this. Just reject the cross. Instead, Jesus applies scripture. What that means is in that moment on that high mountaintop place, I mean, there's no place on the mountain where you could see every kingdom in the world. It's clearly a hyperbole, but it was, obviously he saw a lot there. And in that moment, as Jesus is looking out and seeing all that Satan is offering him, God's words and God's promise took Jesus to an even higher place higher than that mountaintop, higher than the kings of the world. God's word in that moment was more real to Jesus than Satan's promises, than his visible reality. You need to have that. That's the purpose of God's word, to take you to a mountaintop that's higher. Otherwise, your desires will be too strong. Otherwise, the view will just be too magnificent. You will not be able to resist. Many of us here have not been able to resist. We don't pass those tests. And Jesus knows we can't pass those tests. He knows you can't do it on your own strength, which is why he came to pass the test himself. And he passed it perfectly. He took our place for every test he took our place until he took the ultimate place on the cross. And so on the cross, righteousness received God's wrath. Holiness received hell. Perfection received our penalty and price in our place. And Jesus passed still every test 
Only he, he is the only person who ever deserved to indulge. Only he deserves ultimate glory. Only he deserves the ultimate security. He earned it. But when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, I've lost the Father. And when I've lost the Father, that means I've lost my ultimate joy. I will not be able to indulge and be satisfied in the presence of my God. I've lost ultimate glory, my center, the greatest weight of the greatest significance and meaning and center of my life. So my life is off center. There was an earthquake that shook. His life was off center. That means I've lost my security. I've lost my safety. It means he lost all wealth, all his ultimate home with the Father. And so the cross became his ultimate wilderness. It became his, he's saying, I'm lost on the cross. I have no father here. I've been disowned. I'm now orphaned. I am in hell, separated from God. The cross was the only lasting wilderness. The cross is the only eternal wilderness and suffering. And Jesus Christ bore it all and he bore it alone. Why? Because he was taking our place. We deserved the wrath and the hell and the wilderness. But Jesus Christ is not just our king, he is our substitute. And so in union with Jesus, in union with Christ, we receive the satisfaction that he deserved. We receive the glory and the presence of God that he deserved. We receive the security of being in Christ. We say beneath the cross of Jesus, I stand in him complete. Jesus gave up the wealth so we would have ultimate richness in him. He gave up all power so that we would have ultimate power. He gave up his glory so that we would have the glory of the presence of God. He gave up his life so that we would have new life. Change is hard. Change is hard, but it is impossible without the spirit and presence of God in our lives. It is impossible on our own. But in Jesus Christ, you receive the presence of God. You are full of the Spirit on the cross. He said, I'm forsaken, which means what? I've lost the Spirit of God. Why? So that you, we can have it. We receive it. You don't work for it. You don't earn it. He comes to you. He invites you. You're like, well, I never received no invitation. You're here. You're invited to receive that embrace of God. That's what it means to be a Christian. And that gives you power. You know what? You want to know how much power? Who raised Jesus from the dead? If you grew up in a church, you would know. Because we say the Apostles' Creed, and the Apostles' Creed, on the third day, he rose again from the dead. Right? He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit of God raised him from the dead. That power to raise Jesus Christ from the dead lives and resides in you. You have incredible power, ultimate power to endure. You have ultimate power to battle temptation. That's the only satisfaction and glory and presence and power that you need. You see that? 
you got to go to a place, a mountaintop that's higher than the mountaintop that Satan took Jesus. So I want to take you to the mountain of Calvary. Ascend to that higher place and you will see a greater satisfaction, a greater glory, a greater security than anything that the world can offer. Now, if you just do this because Jesus did it, you will fail. But to the degree that you know that Jesus Christ acted as your substitute for you past every test, you know God is real. You know to the degree that you trust that Christ came as God came and died for in your place as your substitute. Then you know the promises of the cross are real. That is the greater reality. That is the greater reality that you need to look at beyond the visible reality of what's being offered at times. And think about it. Jesus Christ, when he, when he resisted temptation, he did it not knowing that will be great reward. He knew it going, doing that will take him to the cross. And yet, facing ultimate abandonment, he obeyed. He's the only person who ever knew God and obeyed God and lost God as a result. And yet he lived the life that we should live and died the death that we should die. Look at the faithfulness of God. Look at the faithfulness of Jesus. He did it gladly. Why would you resist? I'm going to close out here. Why would you resist? Jesus' opinion of you is not going to be enough. Another woman's opinion of you, another man's opinion of you, your boss's opinion of you, a leader's opinion of you, another person, a friend, somebody else's opinion of you, your hurts, I mean, you know, they're often greater. They're so great. They become so urgent. It's why we fall. It's why we fail. Satan's greatest temptation is you know, what? He uses the Bible. He says, the Bible says this. If you're a child of God, do this. And so we tend to, those lies, they get in there and we rationalize our sin. I want you to let the cross be your assurance so that as you look to the person of Christ and the work of Christ on the cross, you want satisfaction? There's the eternal love the eternal peace, the eternal joy of being in Christ, the eternal intimacy of God. You want glory? You are known. God's presence is forever with you. You want security? Revelation says there's no night there because the glory of the Lord is its lamp. What he's saying is there's ultimate security. When you have light, why do you have lampposts in the city? For security. There is no night there. The glory of God is your light. You have ultimate security. You remember the movie Moneyball? I don't know if you guys ever saw that movie. Brad Pitt, you know, about baseball, right? At the end of the movie, one of the guys, one of the actors, he says, the first one through the wall always gets bloody. Only if you see Jesus Christ going through that wall for you, bloodied for you, will you have the power then to resist. That view, that view of the city, that view from the mountaintop, 
only if you see Jesus going through the wall for you, only if you see Jesus climbing and ascending the hill of Calvary for you, will you be able to ascend that hill and see that that is a higher place than any mountaintop in view that you can experience. Look to the cross of Christ. Trust his word. Don't just believe in Jesus. Believe Jesus. Trust his word and obey. Let's pray.